Hello and a warm welcome to the One World Podcast with me, Joe Haddo. Over the past few episodes, we've been looking at some of the brilliant non-fiction titles published by One World, but I'm thrilled to be joined by an American debut novelist for this episode. He's a former student of Columbia University and the Iowa's Writers' Workshop and joins me today in London in a bookshop to discuss The House of Impossible Beauties. Joseph Cassaro, welcome. Hello. Hello, thank you for um, having me for this interview. I'm so thrilled to be here in this bookshop. Well, this let, we should talk about this bookshop. Um, it's the most wonderful setting. Gay is the Word bookshop in Bloomsbury in London. And this is the only specifically gay and lesbian bookstore in the UK. Have you had a chance to look around since you've been here? Yes. So they have a really great selection of fiction and poetry in the front, and we're sitting in the back right now, and I can kind of see a bunch of cards and postcards that are very kind of sassy and witty, like one with a woman, she's wearing an evening dress and gloves, and it just says, you shit glamour. So it's like this mix of high and low camp, and it's so great. But it's it's just, uh, I mean, it's a wonderful setting. It's it's tucked away here in Bloomsbury, and yet since we've been here, I mean, we're sort of sat around the corner, but just over there is... There's, there's shoppers browsing. Um, it's been it's been busy, mm-hmm. you know, in the last twenty minutes, and I imagine it will carry on being. So. Yeah, I think when I walked in, there were maybe seven people in the shop yeah. too, um, looking around. It was great. Feels very community here. Yes, yes. So I feel like if you come here and you shop, you get to know the people who own the place. They get to know your reading interests, what types of books you want, mm. that, and and they will be able to cater to their readers really. Is this your first time to the UK? This is my third time in the UK. The first time I was here, I was 16, and I was in London, so I was too young to maybe go to the pubs (laughs) um, and have a Guinness. And then the second time I was in the UK, I went to Edinburgh, and that was maybe three or four years ago. I went on Halloween, or I guess they say Hallow's Eve here. Um, And it was great. I uh, I went on a haunted tour of the... The graveyard. Oh, great. Which is super spooky, but it's the perfect city for it. Yeah, it is, with all that stone and those... Uh, yeah, those, it's like a giant castle. Those castles. Yeah. Yeah. And then the writer in me was like so totally thrilled to go to the coffee shop where J.K. Rowling wrote <laughs> the first Harry Potter on napkins and the whole story of that. That was fun. Did you write anything on a napkin while you I there? didn't. I had a coffee. I think I, I used the napkin to like dab off foam from my mouth. Okay, <laughs> well, you know, there's inspiration in there yeah. somewhere. <laughs> it, was, it was just great to look out the window and see what she was seeing when she was writing the book. And let's talk about your book, if we may, your, your debut novel. It's inspired by Jenny Livingston's documentary, Paris is Burning. And for those who may not know of it, can you just tell us a little bit about Jenny and about the documentary and, and how your book came from that? Sure. So Jenny is a genderqueer um, Jewish lesbian. Um, f- I believe she's from New York, and she only produced one film in her entire career thus far. She's working on her second now. She's um, She works slowly and, and diligently. Paris is Burning was filmed in the late 80s and I think was released in 1990 or 1991, and it documents the lives of people involved in the of underground ball circuit in New York City. So it mostly takes place in Harlem and the Christopher Street Piers, um, which was kind of, that was the hub of the scene. Mm. And she interviews a bunch of people from different houses, and the houses were different um, street families. So gay and trans kids would run away from home, and they would be homeless on the street, and um, the mothers and fathers of these proxy families would take them in. And so... My novel 
is inspired by the House of Extravaganza, which was the first all Latin house in this scene. And so some of the characters in the book are inspired by real people. So Angel in the book is inspired by Angie Extravaganza. She was the mother of the house. And then there's Hector and Dorian Corey. And then there's some minor cameos by people like Pepper LaBeja, who is the mother of the House of LaBeja. And then the other characters are fictionalized. So it's this fusion of um, a fictional realm with people who actually existed. How many times do you think you've watched that film over the years? I've lost count so many times. I think the first time I saw it, I was 17 or 18 years old. And I, it's one of the films that I've always revisited. It's it's so quotable. There's so many great lines of dialogue that um, are spoken. And I think Jenny did a really great job of editing the film so that you you can hear certain lines while seeing something else take place. And so... It's, I've probably seen it 25 times. Yeah, a lot. Wow. I can. I mean, I can quote large sections <laughs> of the movie from memory, it. yeah. Or even, I rewatched it last night um, at our event in Waterstones, and there were certain lines that I remember, that I, I forgot them, but as soon as I heard them again, I thought, oh, yeah, I remember this line, and it's great. I, mean, I have to remember this um, so I can use it in conversation. And it's so great. It's such a quotable movie that people will quote it at parties, and then... You say, "Oh, you've seen Paris is Burning, and you love it enough that you're quoting it." Like, "Oh, I you, I want to talk to you yeah. at this party." Like, we're going to be friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like me and Friends. Oh yeah, Friends is a great <laughs> show, and also very quotable. So quotable, mm-hmm. and there's always there's always seems to be an opportunity to quote it. There's always a reference that's available. Describe what that film means to you, then, or in, in, it, certainly what what you felt when you first watched it when you were seventeen. When I was young, I was I came out when I was 14, and so I was this young gay kid. I felt kind of alone. There weren't many people that were out um, that were my age, and I felt like I was deprived of um, a community of people who were a little older than me who could have guided me through that process. And what I felt what like era I was, are we talking, sorry, just so to gauge? I came out in 2014, no, 2004, 2003, 2004, mm. and... So the generation before me that I felt was lost were people who, like artists um, and thinkers and creatives, who were lost because of the, you know AIDS. Mm-hmm. And um, so when I watched this film, I felt this like kind of emotional connection to the people in the House of Extravaganza. In the in the book, you capture uh, the era of the nineteen eighties and the nineties, of course, as well. Um, and it's it's Harlem. It's it's so vivid. Obviously, you weren't born then, <laughs> um, so I just wondered how you you set about find, finding how that should read on the page and, and what it was like. Did you speak to people from the time? Sure. So in terms of how it looks on the page, on the prose level, I grew up in New Jersey, which is very close to New York, and my aunts and uncles were from the Bronx and Brooklyn, and so the spoken language that I was listening to as a kid mm was this mixture of Spanish and English and, like, hip-hop references, and which is very much the language of the book, um, the pro style of the book, because that is what I remember. That's what I grew up listening to. And then in terms of research that I had to do, I created this little folder on my laptop 
um, and it became an archive of sorts. So whenever I found photos of people from the documentary or just people from those years, I added them into this archive. So then I could just look at them, see what they were wearing, what their hair looked like, what the streets looked like. I looked at what pay phones looked like on the streets of New York, the graffiti, um, the bars that they went to. And um, so that was like a visual archive. Then I also looked up people's um, accounts of going to different clubs. So one that I think of off the top of my head is Paradise Garage, which is no longer around. But it was quite literally a cement parking garage that they turned into this club. They didn't have a liquor license and people would go. They'd wait in a long line and they'd go in and they'd dance. And people referred to the way that the bass um kind of reverberated or made the the foundations of the cement block kind of vibrate. Mm. And um, I found that really fascinating. I found people's memories of things to be fascinating because even if it wasn't exactly true, if they remembered it as being true, that felt strong enough to include into a narrative. And so I also had a problem in finding certain gaps when I was looking at people's personal histories so Hector is a good example of a character that I didn't know a lot of information about. I knew the year he was born. I knew the year he died. He died of AIDS-related complications before the documentary was even filmed. And he was the father of the House of Extravaganza. And I knew that he was lovers with Angie, who's the mother of the house, and that people described him as being a very good dancer. And so in the novel, the beginning of the book is kind of this blossoming love story between Hector and, Ang and Angel. And he has aspirations of becoming a dancer mm -hmm. and because I was trying to distill the information that I had about him into something that I felt was emotionally true and then I thought how can I translate this emotional truth into scenes and into a narrative and so in the first section of the book he writes these letters to Alvin Ailey and to Martha Graham and so my goal when I had a lack of information was to take this emotional truth and then distill it into like a, I would imagine like the soul of the character and then place that into conversation with a lineage of queer art that came before him mm. I felt in your some of your style the writing style there's it bursts there's short bursts mm. sh short sharp sort of stabs and one could read half a page or get lost in chapters and chapters was that a very deliberate thing Yes. Are you talking about on the sentence level or in terms of scenes? I guess I'm talking about scenes more than more than actual sentence structure, probably. Mm -hmm. So I knew that I wanted the book to be composed of different parts, and I wanted the book to feel like an exploration of time and the effects of time and memory on these characters. So there are times where the scenes might feel a little longer and they need to be punctuated with something shorter. I think that there's always a risk that readers will become comfortable in a narrative if they're exposed to the same types of scenes or the same types of sentences. And whenever there's a shift, there's something very pleasurable for the reader. So in the first part of the book, it mostly explores um, Angel's, Venus's, and Hector's storylines. And then there's a page break, and you, you jump a few years into the future, into part two, and you immediately start the, the next chapter with a monologue from Dorian, who is a character you're familiar with because you've seen her in scene, but now the shape of the book kind of changes, mm. and it alerts the reader 
that something is changing in the form of this book. And it's pleasurable because yeah. the reader is then trying to figure, they're reading, but they're also trying to work to figure out, figure out how this narrative is working. Do you think because of your huge influence from that from that film that perhaps you have written quite a filmic mm-hmm. novel or certainly been been thinking of it in filmic terms i think that the film is so visual and and the book itself also is very visual i think of there's a lot of attention to fabrics and color and the sound and on the prose level the rhythms of and the cadences of the sentences um are meant to replicate the sounds of like Latin freestyle music and hip hop music and the house music, the repetitions. Um, one book that really inspired me was Toni Morrison's Jazz, which takes place in the jazz era in Harlem. And there are also large sections where the prose just becomes very playful in the way that jazz music is playful. And um, I think that's one of the wonderful things just about writing in general, writing novels, is that you can you can take the time to be a little playful with the prose. And so I was thinking about the sonic elements and also the visual elements um, that would compose of the book. Just before we started recording the podcast, we were having a bit of fun with the whole uh, English-American, yes. the way we say words, yeah. the, uh, <laughs> the, the meanings of various things. Um, and you said, quite interestingly, oh, I, you know, this is a very American book. It totally is. I mean, you are American. It's mm-hmm. about... America in the 80s and 90s so so obviously that it, it's going to be I suppose but um, do you feel there are the language in it and maybe some of the references are for a very American audience and and do you think that that we would read it differently over here if we didn't know of, of what you're talking yeah I wonder how because the the prose is so playful with even individual phrases like I'll turn a phrase on its head for example um, or there might be phrases that are slightly grammatically incorrect. And so I wonder how phrases that feel very American would read to readers who are from the UK, who are familiar with, with our colloquial language from movies and TV series. Um, I, don't know, I just kind of have that. It was on, it was on my mind as, yeah. I was, as I was coming here and doing events. But yeah, as I said, you know, we, we read mm-hmm. so much by American authors now. I think we've, we've sort of got used to it. You know? That's true. And I'm trying to think of my own experience reading... Um, authors from the UK, like Alan Hollinghurst, mm. um, for example, and I don't think I've ever been, I don't think I've ever tripped over any of his... Um, and the great thing is you, st- you stumble across a word that you don't know, mm-hmm. the whole joy is to look it up, right? Yeah, that's find true. Out. Yeah. Yeah. Have you always wanted to be a writer? When I look back on things, I've always written, ever since I was really young, and I've always been a reader. I've always loved reading. And when I went to college, I majored in anthropology, and I thought that I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to do, like, international law work. And then I took a fiction workshop, and I loved it. I had so much fun, and I thought, oh, I'm miserable in all my other classes. (laughs) But I'm, like, I'm good at this, and I really enjoy it, so maybe I should switch my field of study and actually give it a shot. Because I never grew up, I never knew writers when I was growing up, and I never knew any artists growing up, and so... I didn't realize that people could actually try and do it for a living or, you know, do it in addition to their job. Um, I just didn't think that it was something that was available to me until I was in college and I, w- I met other people who were writers and I had professors who, who were actually doing this for a living. And I thought, okay, I'll give this a shot. And it was then that that, that was the change of direction then? Wasn't it? it did, yeah. yeah. And now you're teaching? Yes, I... Um, 
I taught for a few years when I was in graduate school at the University of Iowa. And in July, I'm moving to California to start teaching at California State. Chasing that sun. Yes. Well, because I was so cold. <laughs> and I think that's the reason I wrote this. I wrote The House of Impossible Beauties in two years because there's nothing to do in Iowa winter except stay inside and stare at the ice um, and just <laughs> write and read and just try not to be miserable. Right. And so now I will be in California in the sun. And maybe the the next book's going to take a bit longer than for you to get to. <laughs> it might. It might. <laughs> so much to do. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to be a young gay man in America right now? Oh, my gosh. If you were to ask me that question like two years ago, I probably would give you a different answer because so much has changed politically in our landscape. Our current vice president is Mike Pence, who is infamous for being very homophobic and very transphobic. And I think uh, at the center of like LGBT discussions in America now are, are issues of trans rights, specifically bathroom rights. Um, and if you are trans, which bathrooms can you go into? Which is such a stupid argument. I mean, it just steeped in so much bigotry. And um, and that, I can't believe that we're even having this conversation yeah. that this man is our vice president. Um, but he also, when he was the governor of Indiana, rerouted funds in the state from HIV testing and fun- um, yeah HIV testing to uh, conversion therapy, so that they they would send kids to camps basically um, to teach them to not be gay, which is a thing that is still legal in the vast majority of the states. Yes, yeah. I mean California, I think banned it. New Jersey banned it. I mean it is shocking. It is shocking. I think that I can count the number of states where it's banned on maybe one hand. It's only really popular in the South and the Midwest, but yeah, I mean, I met the I met a guy the other day in Iowa, and he grew up in Des Moines, and his father is an anesthesiologist, so he's a doctor, and they sent him to like a conversion program when he came out, and I thought, oh my God, what a waste of money, first of all. Um, but Garrett Conley wrote a really great memoir about his experience. Um, it's called Boy Erased, and it's going. It's going to be a movie. Nicole Kidman is playing his mother. Oh wow! Um, the book's called Boy Raised. Boy Erased. A boy erased. So. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, Russell Crowe will p- play his father. I think Troy Sivan is doing the soundtrack. I mean, it's going to be really great mm-hmm. when it comes out. I think next year, and um, so that is also kind of at the heart of our discussions in the United States now. It's like ca- this needs to be banned. We need to ban conversion therapy. It's a form of torture because the kids who are sent there are young and they're impressionable. Mm. They're going to carry this trauma with them for the rest of their life. And so, I mean, in the book, I kind of explore the effects of trauma in childhood and how characters kind of carry that throughout their life. And then another discussion we're having in the States now is access to PrEP, which is pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is Truvada. It's a pill. If you take it once a day, it can help prevent... It's 99% effective in preventing the spread of HIV. So even if you're exposed to it, if you take this pill once a day, you won't contract it. But because of our health insurance kind of fiasco in the U.S., um, people who need access to this pill don't really have access to it. It costs $12,000 a year if you don't have health insurance. And so I think the characters in the book, for example, would be the characters who, if they lived today, would be the perfect examples of someone who would need this pill um, and they wouldn't have access to it. The people who need it the most, right? People of color, LGBT people, um, sex workers, drug users, um, 
don't have access to this medication. So these are kind of the various things that we're talking about mm. um, in the political and social landscape um, right now in Trump's America, which is kind of a terrifying place <laughs> to be as a, as a young gay person. Yes, I can imagine. Mm. But do you think that books like yours, the film that you mentioned, you know, Boy Rays is going to become this film. There are others, uh, you know, coming out soon. Is it all helping slowly but surely? I think so. I think whenever there is visibility for these types of narratives um, in the media, it helps people just kind of acknowledge that you exist, right? So, for example, the United States, our Center for Disease Control, the Trump administration banned the use of the word transgender, right? So if you cannot use the word transgender at the Center for Disease Control, then you do not acknowledge the fact that, that they exist mm. as people. And so if we can have television shows and movies and books about people who are trans, then it helps to counteract that kind of erasure. I remember when Transparent first mm -hmm. came out, you know, and that's that's a moment just one of hopefully many but that was a moment where i thought we, we're widening we, we're breaking down barriers here a bit absolutely that's a great show i like that show a lot um but it sometimes it takes you know hollywood doesn't it it does and i think hollywood has a the biggest platform really they have so much money all of the movies that they produce get mass distributed in all of the movie theaters across the states and sometimes internationally in many cases. And so um, whenever they use their platform to um, tell stories about diverse and marginalized communities, I think it's, it's good for everyone. It's good for the people who are in those communities and good for people who aren't in those communities who can learn to empathize with those types of people. One thing I, I loved about your book is that the characters aren't cliched they're not written like i've seen people do before and they're 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 real they're they're vivid um and they're human and i imagine i could be wrong that that was something that's that you was very important to you to get to get right it was yes i mean i am like a young gay man and i'm puerto rican and italian and I felt like growing up, whenever I turned on the TV or when I read books, if I ever saw a character who had any resemblance to my own identity, they always felt like stereotypes. And so with this book, I wanted to really explore the inner lives of these characters and, sh and empathize with them and show their ambitions, their dreams, and how they're, they're constantly struggling to survive and succeed in a society that is really pushing back against them, that is really trying to block them from that kind of success. And um, yeah, I mean, my main goal in every scene that I was writing was to write them as human beings, to make sure that the prose uh, represented their consciousness on the page, and to just really f make the characters feel like they were living and breathing souls. A couple of years ago, an author called Garth Greenwell was over in the UK, and he'd just published his debut novel. And I remember going to see him talk at an event where he he kept saying queer fiction. He kept saying talking about his book within queer fiction and lots of queer queer writers and everything. And that for a while, that term over here was very much a, a negative thing. I think it was used against gay people. Same in the states too for a while. So is is this is are we slightly reclaiming 
that now through the genres of of write, like fiction and things. Yeah, I can see why Garth said that as a means of reclaiming the title and not making it um, less than literary fiction. I think that when I think of my own work, I know about the queer tradition that came before this novel and I was writing into that tradition, but I was also very aware of something that I kind of call the American family novel. For some reason, American writers are obsessed with this concept of the family. There's so many novels about the family. Most of these novels are about like white upper middle class families that live in suburbia and are miserable for whatever reason. And so I was trying to use the tropes of the American family novel, fuse it with the traditions of like the queer novel, the 20th century and the early 21st century. And um, in doing so, allowing a, allowing a book to exist that shows queer Latin people existing in a proxy family. And I feel like the characters in my book um, really don't exist in the subgenre of the American family novel. We mentioned earlier our brilliant setting here, Gay's the Word, this bookshop that uh, sits in, in the middle of Bloomsbury in London and specialises in queer literature. Mm-hmm. But shouldn't we just be talking about any novel written or any book? It's just a novel, it doesn't matter who's written it, who's reading it, what the subject matter is. It's just a novel. No, I think that novels are always about certain communities and certain characters and... Um, so if the novel is about the queer experience, then it is you, to identify it as a queer novel is important, I think. It's always a question of what is the normative kind mm. of reference. When I was teaching, I would teach The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison, and I would ask my students to describe what it was about. And they'd say, oh, it's about a little black girl who grows up in the South, and she has this white doll, and she wants to be white, and you know, the novel is about race or whatever. Then I, I would assign Brokeback Mountain by Annie Proulx, and I would ask them, what is this about? And they'd say, oh, this is a gay love story about two men, etc. And then I would ask them, what is Cinderella about? And they'd say, oh, it's about a princess who meets a prince. And I'd be like, oh, but you didn't tell me that she's a white woman, right? So for them, I realized, especially because I was a white state and all my students were, for the most part, white, for them, the normative descriptor, and I find it always, I find it interesting when people describe certain books um, like if I were with gay friends and I were to describe something as a love story, um, would I describe it as a gay love story or would I just assume that because the people I'm talking to are gay that they would assume that it's like two men or two women? Mm. I find it really interesting. Yeah, it is. It is, um, And things are, things are shifting in that sense, I think, now, and, and people aren't so quick to say when, you know, it, talking about someone, their husband, their wife... Mm-hmm. As I say, my partner, my partner, yeah. but also you know, it could be your husband and wife. Mm-hmm. If you're a man, they don't. If, if if a man says, "Oh, my husband," people are starting to not sort of go, "Hey, don't you mean your wife?" You know? Yeah, I think people um, are more aware of their language and don't assume that people will assume that they're straight or that they're gay. Right? People are aware of heteronormativity and the way that their language can um, perpetuate heteronormative values. Mm-hmm. 
Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of fascinating. I like the shift, though. I find it nice. Although I do find it confusing sometimes because then I meet someone <laughs> at a bar and they'll like say, oh, my partner or whatever. And I think, oh, now I don't know if this person is gay or straight. I have to wait until I meet this person's partner or they say their name. <laughs> so it makes, it, little, then, I know, it, makes it, more, <laughs> it makes it more difficult to navigate the world <laughs> as a gay person. <laughs> if, it's, if it's you and me, it's Joe, right? It could be, yeah, a, right. Could be a man or a woman. Right. Oh, yeah, totally. Right. J-O is, yeah, is the yeah. female spelling. Exactly. Oh yeah. What are your hopes for the book? I hope that this book can find the young gay readers um, out there. I remember being a young gay reader and not feeling like I had access to a lot of fiction. And when I was in Iowa City doing my first reading, there was um, a boy in the back. I think he was 18 or 19. He was just starting university. And he came up to me afterwards and he said that he had just come out and he wants to be a writer. And he asked me for a list of books that he should read. And um, I think of readers like him, like young queer people who want to have access to stories about diverse characters. Well, it's a fabulous book, and uh, we wish you all the best with it, of course, and hope you'll come and see us again in London or in the UK. Thank you. I mean, I have been having such a great trip in London. I would love to come back. Maybe when you're sat in the sun in California, (laughs) (laughs) thinking about your next novel or perhaps writing it, you know, set it in Edinburgh or something. Yeah, I'll just close my eyes and dream of, like, rainy London spring, (laughs) which I find totally romantic, which I think annoys all the people who live here because then they get wet. But for me, it's just like, oh, I mean, it's, like, so gray and wonderful in London. Yeah, you don't live it every day, mate. I know, I know, I know. I totally, absolutely, I get it. (laughs) Uh, No, we love it too, really, honestly. Um, And do you have plans for the next book? Is it too early to ask, considering this is just coming? I have a very vague idea of the book and I for me I need to understand a vague sense of structure and form for the book mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm working on well right now I'm in the research phase um, I'm reading a biography about an early 20th century American painter who was closeted it was kind of a semi-open secret and um, he was a major figure in American painting um, but a lot of a lot of the archives and the museums kind of ignore this fact. And so I want to kind of resurrect this story and, and imagine what some of the tumultuous aspects of his life were like and turn it into a narrative. So, yeah. Thinking about your debut novel, I suppose the research part is a, is a really exciting time and also a very important thing for you. I love the research part because it can give me ideas about certain scenes that I want to write. And then when I find gaps, I wonder why the gaps exist. Mm and um, what I can do as a fiction writer to kind of fill in those gaps. And then I would also like to write a collection of stories about contemporary (coughs) queer life in the U.S. I think that it will help counteract some of the historical things that I write by grounding me in the present day. exactly. (laughs) Well, as we discussed earlier, there's quite a lot to write about, potentially. I know. I mean, it's maybe the only good thing that comes out of intense political times that artists and writers can observe absorb everything and then eventually kind of channel it into our own work and present it to our societies the house of impossible beauties is published by one world and available now of course and if you enjoy our podcast and want to spread the word remember you can join the conversation by following us on twitter at one world news 
And that's all for this episode. So from me, Joe Haddo, our guest, Joseph Cassara, and everyone at One World, thanks for listening. And we hope you can join us for the next one. Until then, bye for now. <laughs>